Thus says the Lord of hosts, Ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priest answered and said, No. Then Haggai said, If someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priests and the priest answered and said, It does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, So is it with these people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. Now then, consider from this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of twenty measures, there were but ten. When one came to the wine vat to draw fifty measures, there were but twenty. I strike you and all the products of your toil, with blight and with mildew and with hail. Yet you did not tend to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward, from the twenty-fourth day of the ninth month, since the day of the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the bun? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning to you all. A warm welcome to our evening service if you're here for the very first time. My name is Reggie, and we are indeed glad to have you. If you're here for the first time, you're joining us on our third talk in Haggai. So without uh, sounding like I'm promoting uh, myself, I'd really encourage you to find a way to listen to those first two talks. They'll be of great help to you uh, when you have time to to listen to them. Uh, Tonight, as I've just mentioned, we're on our third talk. Our first talk was titled Priorities and In our first talk, really, God was trying to get his people to realize that they don't have their priorities correctly. They've made life about themselves. They've made life about building their own kingdoms instead of God's kingdom. And so God really calls them to focus on his his kingdom. And his people turn. They repent and really do focus on God's kingdom. They build the temple. And in our second talk, the people became discouraged. And so God comes to them to give them courage to continue. God says to them, I have provided to you, or I've promised you, my spirit and my provision. He says, I'm with you, so continue with the work that I've called you to. And in those first two talks, what you and I really got is that God is saying to us, let us get our priorities correctly and focus on his kingdom. And when you and I are focusing on his kingdom, we can be certain that as we work, he works alongside us, that he, that he is with us. Indeed, and in today's talk, as you will see with the title behind me, God will challenge you and I to rest in his promises instead of our own works. So let me pray for us as we come to God's word. Lord, would you indeed this morning make us realize that it's not about our own power, our own knowledge, our own intelligence, or even our own deeds that we are right before you but that it is only through your intervening grace that a holy God now has a relationship 
with an unholy people. So Lord, would you speak powerfully through your word this evening, we pray. Amen. Now there's a book by a guy called Gary Chapman. The name of the book is called Five Languages of Love. I'm not certain if you've heard of the book before. See, in this book, Gary Chapman helps people to be able to discover what their love language is. And at discovering their love language, they can then improve their relationships with those around them. He makes them understand how they give love and how they receive love. The first book that he released, we actually have a course that we run here in the church from this book. The first book he released was primarily focused on couples. Couples who are either married or couples who are engaged. Now, I'm not sure if the books that followed came because of the, of the success of the first book or because they were planned. See, in the first book, he's trying to help couples to learn to understand what their love language is so that they can love their partner a lot better. And in the other books that he releases, there's a book on the love language or love relationship with your children. How can you love your children better? There's one for teenagers, because teenagers are obviously a little bit different to your kids. And now, I know singles always feel like they left out, but there's one for singles as well. Yeah, amen. There's one for singles as well. And there's also another one for men. Yes, there's, there's, there's one for men to understand what their love language is. Now, I can't, I can't seem to understand why there isn't one for, for women. Perhaps it's because women are a little bit complicated. Perfect. <laughs> but really in that book that he's teaching men the love language, he's teaching them how to love women better. So it seems in the first book about couples, men didn't get the message. So he comes back again and says, hey, let me help you out there. He's got other books as well. There's one about the love language in the military. There's one about the five languages of appreciation in the workplace. If you're a boss or a manager right now, uh, consider getting that one. This will be helpful to you. Now, perhaps you're sitting here this evening and you're wondering, what is this love language that this guy is talking about? What are these love languages? I'll be really interested in knowing about it so that I can improve my own love language. Or perhaps you're thinking, the person I brought with me really needs to hear this. So speak more. Say more. Well, I want to leave you in the cold or in the rain. Let me explain what the five love languages are. Now, these are in no particular order. The first one is words of affirmation. And these words of affirmation are short and simple phrases of praise, such as, that dress looks incredible on you. Or, I like your beard. Or, you always make me laugh. I love your hair today. Here's another one. Physical touch. Now, I don't think that one needs an explanation. Amen? And then there's quality time. And quality time is really trying to get the people to realize you ought to give this person your undivided attention. Away from technology or anything like that. You're giving this person your undivided, your undivided attention. And there's one about acts of service. Where you really do the things... Uh, that the other person doesn't like doing. No, no, I'm kidding. But you do the things like cooking to really serve your spouse, perhaps if they're always cooking. And there's one about receiving gifts. Now, I think the, woman's, the woman would appreciate this one a lot more. Now, now, 
In this one, he doesn't seem to be saying women are materialistic. He's, he's, he's simply pointing out that the person appreciates a gift that you've brought them. So you could go to spa to buy groceries and you come back with the chocolate. And the, the love language of that person is that. They love the gift that you've given them. They receive love in that way. See, I think the books can be really beneficial for couples, for singles, for children, for teenagers, and for the workplace as well. But here's the one thing about you and me. You and I are so flawed that we can take something this good and use it for ill. Now, now this is what I mean. My, my, my wife's love language is, or the last time I checked, was quality time. I think I might be moving to acts of service now because uh, she's pregnant and I've been doing a number of the things in the house. That, 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 that's her love language. My love language is, is physical touch, which... Which explains the three kids. No, no. <laughs> but physical touches and physical touch has more to do with that. It could be holding hands, just a pet, a kiss. There's more to it than simply what we're thinking. Now, now imagine this. Imagine if I started using this deed or this act as a measuring stick or as a barometer to indicate or to say my relationship with my wife is in a good place. I wash the dishes. I, I changed the diaper of the kids. So surely you know I love you, right? And surely you should be responding in the same way to me. Imagine if my wife said that. So you and I have this uncanny ability to take something that is good and just use it for ill in a terrible and self-exalting way. See, we carry this error into our thinking about our relationship with God. We measure our relationship with God with, with this same barometer or measuring stick. We say, God, look at me. I'm all about building your kingdom. Look what I did for you this coming week. Surely, God, you're going to bless me, right? Surely you love me more now, right? Surely you're more pleased with me now that I've acted in this way. See, you and I won't really admit this. But have you noticed how you and I walk around with a gold halo around our head after we have, we've been very consistent with our devotion for a week? God, look at me. Surely you can tell I love you. Surely I deserve blessing. Well, when you've been praying, not just for yourself, but for those around you, and for those who persecute you, God, God, look at what I'm doing. Surely you love me more. When you've shared the gospel with that colleague that has been rejecting you, when you lead others in love, in God's love, when God leads you, I mean, in love to those around you, when, when you don't use uncensored language in traffic, when you love your spouse or your children, when you use your singleness to serve others, I mean, all of us have got to be serving people. When you say, God, did you see that I put in a little bit more in the collection bag this week? Have you noticed that? Have you noticed how you and I, or am I the only one who's this petty? That we use our acts of service. We use our good deeds to say, God, look at me. Surely you love me more. Surely you're more pleased with me. I mean, why is that? Well, why do we do that? 
Why do you and I feel good about ourselves and particularly about our relationship with God when you and I have acted out our love language to God? God, I've done my part, now do your part. What is it about us that takes something as good, such as serving God, being part of his kingdom, as he hashtag rebuilds the world and say, God, look at me. God, you must be really pleased with me. Surely I'm a bit acceptable to you. Look at my deeds, God. What's wrong with us? Well, an author by the name Kev D. Young would say, the problem with you and I is that you and I have a hole in our holiness. We've got a hole in our holiness, in, in the understanding of what holiness is. You and I don't have a correct understanding of God's holiness, of God's nature. And so we think a few good deeds will have God in our pocket. And we don't correctly understand how broken we are. That we are flawed people. That we are unholy people. We don't understand that we are broken. And that you and I are more inclined to self-reliance than resting in the gospel. See, if, if you and I don't realize that we've got this hole in our holiness, then it will blunt our effectiveness to the kingdom. It will blunt our effectiveness to God using us to transform the world, to transform the lives of those around us. And so in this message tonight, as Haggai brings his third sermon to the people, God as well wants to challenge us with this same word that he challenged these people with. So that you and I would begin to think right about God. We begin to think right about ourselves and God's kingdom. See, God sends Haggai a third time. There's another guy whom he sends called Zechariah. And, and the people yet again respond to Haggai. See, Haggai's message and the response from, from the people are the dream of every preacher. That you would preach and that God would use you and that people would respond to God. And my prayer tonight is that indeed God would challenge us and that he would get us to realize, to think right about who he is, about his holiness, and to think right about who we are and how you and I can have a relationship with this holy God. And so as we turn to our passage this evening, I have two points for us. And the two points are, this is the first one, whole in our holiness. And the second point is blessing for an unholy people. So let's turn to that passage that was read for us. And we'll go through our first point, which will be from verse 10 to verse 19. But we'll read... Um, We'll read some verses and then we'll explain them as we move along that section. So the first point, hold in our holiness. Now verse 10 was meant to be read, so let me read verse 10 for us. Verse 10 reads as follows. On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Let's stop there for now. Now, you would remember that I've mentioned that in the book of Haggai, dates are very important. They're important because they give us a background of what is happening at the time. And, and in the book of Haggai, we've seen dates being mentioned two or three times already. And you see what this date tells us. It tells us this, that it is four months since Haggai had come to preach his first message to God's people. See, Haggai had preached two messages already. 
And after his first message about priorities, where he said to God's people, you guys are focused so much on building your own kingdom that you've forgotten about God's mission. You've stopped. Not merely because of, of, of persecution or opposition, but you've stopped. Because you've made yourself kings over your own lives. When he brought that message, the people responded. And in three weeks, they started working. So the people realized that life was not about their own dreams, about their ambitions and their successes. They realized that life is about God and living for his kingdom. They realized that for too long they've had God in the back seat. And it's not like they were chauffeuring God around as a special guest or as a distinguished guest. Rather, they had God in the back because they don't want to focus on him. Actually, to say God is in the back seat is very nice. They'd got in the boot, and they'd pop the boot whenever they want him. And you see, the people here realized that. And so three weeks after that, they began building the temple once again. They responded. A month, after, a month later after that, as I mentioned a bit earlier, the people became discouraged. They realized that the job was perhaps too big for them. They had minimal resources. They, they had lack of progress, because what they'd done in a month was just clear out the rubble. You see, the people didn't believe that God would use them in the same way that he had used Solomon and the generation that built that temple. They didn't believe that God's power was with them as it was those that came before them. And so as discouraged as they are, God comes to them and gives them a word. He says, I'm with you. God says, continue with the work. I'm with you with my spirit. And I'll provide a way for you to be able to do the work I've called you to. God says, God says to them, I'm with you and I've gone before you. Get your face off the rearview mirror and look through the front windshield of faith and trust that I can use you to turn this rubble into something that will bring me glory and that will bring you peace. And the people took courage and started building. And a month later, which is the four, four months we're in now, the rubble has been cleared. And what the people have done so far is lay out a foundation for the temple. Now, I'm not much of a builder, but I've realized that usually when people work on a building, they, they spend quite a lot of time working on the foundation because the foundation is important to the building that they're making. And you see, the people here had managed to get to a point where they built the foundation. So you could imagine that around the city, there was celebration and jubilation that, look, we finally made, we're finally making progress. Things look like they're turning around. But as you and I read further, instead, instead of saying, look at how God has blessed us, look at how God has blessed our work, in a Johnny Bravo way, they say, look at how awesome we are. Because we have done such a great work, we are entitled to God's blessing. Now, if you've watched Johnny Bravo, you'd know that immediately after he says, he professes how awesome he is, he usually gets whacked. Someone makes him realize that he's not as awesome as he thinks he is. And God does that to his people here. He makes them realize, he confronts them so that they would realize that they're not as great as they think they are. And God tonight could be confronting you and I to realize that we're not as awesome as we think we are. See, the only one who's awesome is God. The only one who's holy is God. And this is what God wants his people to see. 
So listen to how God brings this message to his people. Listen to verse 11 11 to verse 14 as God shows his people the hold in their holiness. Verse 11 reads as follows. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with this fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priest answered and said, no. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priest answered and said, it does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, so it is with these people and with this nation before me declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hands and what they offer there is unclean. Now imagine as I read that verse, you and I are probably wondering what is God, what is God saying here? Uh, This kind of language is language that is perhaps unfamiliar to us. So so let me remind you uh, of the importance of the temple. See, the importance of uh, understanding the importance of the temple or the significance of the temple will help us understand uh, the kind of language that God is using here. See, the temple was there not only as the place where God comes to dwell among his people, but the temple was there as a place where the people came to make sacrifices. The people came to bring their acts of worship before God. They would bring sacrifices of thanksgiving to thank this holy God for his provision. They would make sacrifices of fellowship that this God who is holy has a relationship with them, unholy people. And they would also make sin offerings because they realize that they are unholy and God is holy. So they need to confess their sins quite regularly. See, the temple wasn't just there for encouragement that this represents God's presence, but the temple was there to remind the people that God is holy and that they should approach him with reverent fear. The temple was there for that very reason. But you see, this group doesn't realize that they are unholy and that God is holy. They've forgotten one of the purposes of the temple. And so God uses temple language in order to get them to realize that they are unholy. Now this is one of the temple, language, temple languages that can help us understand what God is saying here. He uses that phrase, folds of the garment. Now, now you and I might be wondering, what is that? Well, if a priest had to come and make the sacrifice before God for the people and for himself, what he would do is, after the animal has been slaughtered, he would take his garment that he's wearing that has folds inside, And he would take this meat and put it within these folds. And the reason he did that is because he wanted to protect this meat that has been now dedicated to God. This meat that has now been said to be holy from being contaminated. Being contaminated by wine or leavened bread. That was the point. That this meat has been set aside to belong to God. Now I want you to realize that the meat itself does not have attributes of holiness. The meat is only holy because it is associated with God. Because it belongs to God. It has been set apart to God, this holy God. You see, God in using this language wants his people to realize that holiness does not spread by association unless God intervenes by his grace. Whereas unholiness 
does spread by association. See, holiness is not contagious, whereas unholiness, uncleanliness is contagious. Now, let me use modern day language so I, I know that we are on the same page. Let's say you had a big bag of fruit. Well, what fruit usually becomes rotten very quickly? I think oranges, well, who's got something different? Banana. banana. Let, let's say you've got a bag of bananas. And you've gotten home and you've realized that after you've left spa, one of the bananas in the bag is, is rotten. What usually happens? If you don't take out that banana, the rest of the bag spoils, right? Th- that's what happens. Uncleanliness spread. It's contagious. But if you had a bag of bananas that were, that were all rotten, and you decided to take a banana that was not rotten and put it in the bag, what would happen? That banana would become rotten, right? And this is what he's, he's trying to get them to realize. Holiness is not contagious, but unholiness is contagious. Here's another example. Let's say someone who's sick walks in through this room. They flew, perhaps, and they decide to shake a couple of people's hands here. See, I'm quite sure by Tuesday, Wednesday, a number of us here will be sick. But if someone who was healthy walked into a room with people who were sick and touched them, they would not become immediately healthy, right? Holiness is not contagious. White shoes. You have white shoes, you jump on a big puddle of mud. Your white shoes are not going to make the mud white. No, rather your shoes will get dirty. You see what God is trying to get them to get here? Unholiness is contagious, whereas holiness is not contagious. See, God wants his people to see that just because they're involved in holy work, they're involved in the work of building his kingdom, that does not necessarily make them holy does not make them holy. Just because you come to church and you serve, just because you're meeting with some people whom you're discipling, just because you give to the church, does not necessarily mean you're in good standing with God. See, God here wants his people to realize that, that the heart attitude that they do their work with matters. And the heart attitude here is one of people who are unholy. Because these people have gotten to a point where they think building the temple has given us a right standing with God. These good deeds we've done, God, God must be pleased with them. He must be pleased with us. And so surely God must bless us for the work we have done. And you see, what God wants them to realize is that one, holiness is not contagious, and so they are unholy. And two, unholiness is contagious. And so even the very work that they're doing for God is unholy because they are doing it with an attitude that is unholy, with a heart that is unholy, with a heart that has them as the center, with a heart that has them as the king. See, they are sitting on the throne, and God is not. They've made things about them instead of making things about God. Now, as I said before, you and I actually fall into this same trap. We use our service to God to merit, as a way to merit this gold halo, to say, God, I'm a, I'm a bit of a saint now. Surely you're a little bit pleased with me. Surely you're a little bit pleased with me, God. We use our service and our goods, good works 
to elevate, ourse- elevate ourselves to a level that is similar to God. You, you're pleased with me, God. Uh, I've got you in my pocket. Now, now here's the other thing we do. We, we don't just elevate ourselves to the level of God, but we actually look down on others. This is what you and I do. And we do it in very subtle comments, such as, I wish everyone could have the same servant heart that I do. Oh, why isn't everyone serving like I am? Well, why, why is he not discipling any people? Why isn't she discipling people? I meet with five people. Well, why, why aren't they doing anything? I give to the church. Why aren't they giving? Or when you hear a sermon that is convicting, a sermon that we would say is fire, you and I hear a sermon about gossip, about adultery or sexual immorality, we'll, we'll look around the room and think, oh, I know Reggie struggles with that sin. I hope he's hearing that. And perhaps you turn to him and look at him and say, I hope you heard that, hey? I know you struggle with that sin, so I hope you heard God's word. So this pride that Kate mentioned a bit earlier, the scripture says is in the same bracket as all other sins. Martin, a few weeks ago, preached a sermon about LG. You guys, you guys get it, right? Yeah, he preached a sermon about that. And what, sermon, what Martin tried to make us understand is, hey, all of us are in the same bracket. All of us are sinful. All of us are unholy. None of us can elevate ourselves to the level of God. None of us can come before God and say, hey, look at my good works. Look, what I, look at what I've done. Surely you're a little bit pleased. And you see, these subtle comments reveal that you and I have a hole in our holiness. We, just, we don't realize how broken we are. And we don't realize how, how holy God is. And we don't realize how desperate we are for the gospel. Jerry Bridges in his book, The Pursuit of Holiness. Now I think this would be a book that is worthwhile for you to get. He says this. This is a great quote that he says from the book. He says, our worst days are never so bad that you and I are beyond the reach of God's grace. Now here are the next one. Our best days are never so good that you are beyond the need of God's grace. You, you, you never get to a point where you, where you feel like you don't need God's grace. See, when you get to that point, you, you're not resting on God's promises. You're not resting on the gospel. You're resting on your own work. You've made yourself the king of your own heart. Sinclair Ferguson says this, The benefits of the gospel are in Christ. They do not exist apart from him. They are ours only in him. They cannot be abstracted from him as if we ourselves could possess them independently from him. It's only because of Jesus that we, we can stand right before God, not our good works, which is why Paul clearly says, all of us are unholy. There's no one who's righteous. No, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. See, it is when we realize how desperate we are for the gospel, how desperate we are for Jesus, that our good works for God can matter that our good works for God matter. One commentator says this, what you do with your hands will never matter to God if he does not have ownership of your heart. What you do with your hands will never matter to God if he does not have ownership of your heart. 
Go sit on the throne of your heart. What are you resting in tonight? Are you resting in the gospel? Are you resting in your own work? Now you may say, oh yeah, I have my priorities sorted out. I'm encouraged. Look at me. I'm focused on building God's kingdom. But you see, if you have made that about yourself, then your work won't matter to God. Because he does not possess your heart. God is not concerned, brothers and sisters, merely for us to be involved in his holy work, in his kingdom, in building his kingdom. See, God in renewing the world wants to renew your and my heart as we work alongside him. See, God wants ownership of our hearts. He wants us to have him as king of our lives. Again, back to Kev DeYoung. This is what he says. You can't make sense of the Bible without understanding that God is holy and that this holy God is intent on making a holy people to live with him forever in a holy heaven. It's not just about a holy heaven or a holy new Jerusalem, a holy new heavens and earth. No, God is intent on making a holy people to live with him forever in a holy heaven. God is concerned about your holiness. And so I think at this moment, it is perhaps important to caution against a pendulum swing that you and I often do. See, after hearing this, you and I might be tempted to think good works don't matter. And so we might walk out of here and think I can live how I want. But grace is a license. Well, well, that's not the case. God here simply wants his people to realize that their works are not what make them right before him. But their works are still important. God still wants them to do their work. God still wants them to walk in obedience. God still wants them to walk in the light of the gospel. See, God wants ownership of our hearts. And he then wants us to work alongside him, to walk in obedience, to do good works, to build his kingdom, being motivated by the gospel. And you see, Haggai here wants us to see this. And Haggai continues to remind the people that the only way that they can experience blessing is through God's intervening grace. Listen to what he says in verse 15 to verse 19a. Verse 15. Verse 15 reads as follows. Now then, consider from this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord. How did you fare? When, when one came to a heap of 20 measures, there were but 10. When one came to wine to the wine vet to draw 50 measures there were but 20 i struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mild you and with hail yet you did not turn to me declares the lord consider from this day onward from the 24th day of the ninth month since the day that the foundation of the lord's temple was laid so what god wants his people to see here is before he intervened by his grace, there were no way. See, he points to three events, a past event, a present event, and then he also talks about a future event. God says to them, hey, 
Look back in the past. Remember before you came back to me and repented and started doing the work of building the temple. How, how were things around? Uh, were, were, were you experiencing blessing? No, you weren't. You were experiencing my curse because you were not walking in obedience. And then he says, look around now. Are things any different? And then he says to them, what makes you think that as you plant now, that you will receive a harvest next year? See, what God is trying to get them to realize is their good works is not what brings God's blessing upon them. See, God's blessing comes upon them because God decides to intervene by his grace. It is because of the intervention of God's grace that God's people experience his blessing. And so let's move to our second point from verse 19b. Our second point is God's blessing for an unholy people. And now let's read verse 19b. Verse 19b reads as follows. But from this day, I will bless you. Now, first question you've, you've got to be asking is, God has spoken about curses. Hey, what kind of blessing is he talking about here? Is he talking about a harvest that they will receive? Perhaps. Perhaps that's what God is talking about here, here in this passage. See, as you read through the passage, what you see is the people have repented. Whenever Hagar has come to bring God's word, the people repent. But, but how can God bless an unholy people? I think as you read through that, you, you should feel that tension. How does God bless an unholy people? See, it is then that we realize that there's perhaps more that this verse says. There's perhaps more that God is saying about this blessing. See, this whole verse or this whole section has been about unholiness and holiness and cleanliness and cleanliness. And surely this blessing that God is talking about has to do with that, Right? Surely this blessing has to do with this unholiness and holiness that God has been talking about. See, this verse here, this section ends with the promise that God would one day bless an unholy people. Now, if you remember what I said earlier, I said holiness is not contagious. But you see, in this promise, we realize that when Jesus steps into the scene, that holiness is actually contagious. See, Jesus, a number of times in his ministry, walks around, and as he's preaching, he's teaching that people that come around him, some of them who have what is considered as being uncleanliness, some who have leprosy, and they come to him. And, and what you would think, and this is what people think as well, that Jesus, don't touch them, you'll become unclean. But if you read through the gospel, if you've been through the church, what you realize, or if you're here for the first time, let me tell you, what happens is when these unclean people come to Jesus, have an encounter with Jesus, actually holiness becomes contagious. Their holiness is transferred. His holiness is transferred to them. Holiness through Jesus is contagious. There's a woman with a bleeding disease, which is also considered as being unclean. She comes to Jesus and she's thinking, if only I touch the hem of his garment. And she does. And when she does, Jesus' holiness becomes contagious. It is transferred to her. 
is a man who said to have a legion of demons. When he has an encounter with Jesus, a similar thing happens. See, all these encounters, all these miraculous signs are pointing us to what Jesus would ultimately do at the cross, that Jesus would come to bring blessing to God's people. And the kind of blessing he would bring is take an unholy people and make them holy and make sure that they have a right relationship with God. See, the blessing that ultimately God brings to his people is through his son on the cross. Jesus, who becomes unholiness for us. Jesus, who becomes the leper for us. Jesus, who's, who's pushed out of the city for us in order, that, in order that you and I would be considered to be holy by God. In order that you and I would be considered to be in right standing with God. You see, you and I have no need of the temple. You and I have no need of sacrifices to be considered as holy. See, Jesus is our sacrifice. Jesus is our temple. He is the place where an unholy people meet a holy God. He is the place where an unholy people can have a relationship with a holy God. It is through him that you and I become presentable before God. And this is what Paul wants us to understand in Colossians. See, Paul, in Colossians chapter 1, you can turn to that passage. Listen to what Paul says in this section. In Colossians chapter 1, Paul paints out to us how God mediates his blessing to an unholy people by making them holy. This is what Paul says in Colossians chapter 1. And then we read from verse 21. If you haven't found the page, it's page 983. Colossians 1, verse 21 says, And you were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. He, and you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under the heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a servant. See what Paul is pointing us to there? Jesus actually brings us God's blessing. Jesus brings blessing to an unholy people by making them holy through his death, by making them blameless through his death. So this is the gospel, how God ensures that you and I can be in right standing with him. Now, if this is what God has done for us, why do we feel the need to, to do good works to please him? Or why do we feel to use a barometer, a measuring stick to say, look, look, you must be pleased with me. Well, why do we feel that need? Well, why do we feel the need to compare ourselves with others? Tim Keller says this. He says the gospel is this, that we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. 
I mean, if this is your standing before God, why do you feel the need? I wonder if you believe this tonight. I wonder if you're resting in God's promises tonight. So you and I can only be passionate about building God's kingdom, about using our lives or building our lives upon his word when we get this. Dare I even say, God will only use us to raise up the work of his kingdom, to change the people around us. When you and I get this, when we realize that our ever work should be flowing from the gospel, and we realize our ever work should be flowing from his great love for us. And so this evening, if you've been depending on your work, can I call you as God calls the Israelites to return to God? Return to the gospel. Once you rest in this gospel, and then work for his kingdom. Disciple others, love others, serve. If you're not a Christian, and if you're not a Christian here tonight, see, just as Jesus said to the leper and to many others that he met, I'm willing to make you clean. I'm willing to make you holy. He's extending that very same offer to you tonight. He says, I'm willing to make sure that you have a good relationship with God that you can be forgiven of your sin. Just come to me. Let me pray for us. Lord, we do pray this evening that you'd make us realize that we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. And yet, at the same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever did hope. And Lord, would you help us from this point to rest in your gospel and to do the work of building your kingdom while resting in your gospel, while resting in your promises. And Lord, for any tonight who have not yet turned to you, I pray that they would realize that you are willing to make them holy. Amen.